0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. So uh, today we've got a uh, very special guest, uh, Rich Yesselson, who is a former labor organizer, uh, writer, scholar of labor history and other things. Um, anything I'm missing there, Rich?
2: I just, uh, I got to correct you because actually the, the real organizers... Get annoyed. I wasn't a labor organizer. I was what they call a uh strategic campaigner doing you know, corporate campaigns. I actually sort of discussed that a bit in the first part of my recent uh nation review essay. But uh, you know, there's there's some overlap, but not quite the same thing.
1: Yeah. Um so you know, for for us uh, union rubes, new, newbies who aren't familiar with the lingo, sort of l- labor organizing adjacent uh, related program activities, you yeah, might say. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah, so I thought, you know, i got a few questions here. We're, we, we could maybe start the discussion with this uh, article in The Nation, which um, I'll, uh, we'll link in the description. But it's a review of Eric Lumis's new book. Um, oh, I didn't write down what's the, what's the name of it, Rich?
0: A History of America in Ten Strikes. That's it. That's it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you got this great review of his book, which talks about you know the sort of the 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 history of the labor movement. Um, but one thing it starts with is this very wild story of your own. Uh, this this one. Uh, instance of trying to beat this this just terrible boss of um, from one of the 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 aluminum Baron Mark Rich right right right. Um, yeah so so later pardoned by Bill Clinton funnily enough right uh, so, outrageously. If you could tell, just maybe tell sort of the highlights of that story. You know, there's like attempted murder. There's this financial shenanigans, James Bond stuff.
2: Yeah, it was pretty, it was actually pretty incredible. Um, But it also speaks to a particular moment in uh, the trajectory of of the American labor movement, too. I mean, the gist of it is, as as I was saying before, I was sort of part of this, what I call in the piece, like this newish paradigm called comprehensive campaigns. Some people earlier called it corporate campaigns. And the reason that comprehensive campaigns even became like a thing in the labor movement was precisely to compensate for the decline in membership and correspondingly the decline in rank-and-file energy, maybe, militancy. Or you might, you know, in fairness to rank and file, you might say the inability of labor to figure out how to organize on scale and also how to defend the contracts they had. So the way that was done was you didn't just stay within the paradigm of labor stuff or labor law, like you didn't just just walk around with a picket sign or you didn't just go to the bargaining table to demand your rights you saw the company as a unified organic adversary, and you tried to you know effectively analyze as as well as any sort of you know Goldman Sachs analyst as well as you could the company's whole business model, and then you would leverage the business model um not just your your rank and file strength on the, on the shop floor you'd leverage the business model in order to like Actually, then go back to your goal as, as a union, which was either to organize a new shop or to defend the contract of an old shop. So the Ravenswood case is it's an aluminum uh, facility. Actually, for a while, it made it made the aluminum for about 60, 65 percent of like the canned goods, canned beer and, and soda in the country. Um, so it was a big shop Ooh. in uh, Ravenswood, West Virginia. It was controlled although not owned by this right it's almost james bondy in character mark rich whose nickname was aluminum finger because he <laughs> he like because he like you know basically controlled you know the largest segment of the world aluminum market and the world bauxite market you can't make aluminum without bauxite um he also, you know, it wasn't just aluminum. It was a- anything metal the guy traded is a multi-billionaire, one of the most gratifying parts of the whole campaign. I'll say parenthetically, I didn't say this in the didn't have you know space to say everything. And the piece was at one point, Forbes called us in in our little labor shop and said, so, yeah, hi. We, like we know you've been uh, like working on uh, re- researching Mark Rich and. um you know, we're trying to like figure out what his net worth is, you know, for the Forbes four hundred list. And uh, you know, so I just wondered, you know, what what do you think? What would you estimate his net his uh, net worth is? I said, look, I said, what? Forbes, aren't you guys known as the capitalist tool? You're calling like three you're calling like three union researchers to see to see what the net worth of one of the biggest plutocrats on earth is you know i mean it was incredible it was incredibly gratifying i mean and we, I think we may well have had a better idea than he did a lot of stuff was hidden you know but it was it was it was wonderful sure so anyway so basically long story short here so rich controlled this place through a bunch of cutouts um and you know in other words he he wasn't involved in the local management there was another guy who the workers called Ratface who was like literally the rat face of management, and they hated him. But behind all this is this guy, Mark Rich, and where is he? He's in Zug, Switzerland. Well, I thought he was an American. Well, he, he is an American, but he had fled the uh, United States jurisdiction, like in the early 1980s, um, with a, with a, 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 a uh, not a suitcase, what do they call those things? A trunk, a massive trunk <laughs> full of documents. I mean, this is pre-Internet. This is all hot hard copy stuff right so that's a trunk full of stuff because the uh u.s attorney southern district then headed by none other than rudolph giuliani accused him of what was then the largest uh tax evasion case in the united in united states history something like 250 million dollars um you know where he was also accused of you know trading you know violating like you know sanctions with south africa sanctions with iran I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. So he takes off for Switzerland, which, of course, has a very lenient view of, of, of financial crimes. And he's got all kinds of stuff buried all over the place. But he's still controlling stuff in the United States, as we discovered. And so the, the gist of this is it's an incredible campaign. It lasts a little under two years. We chase this guy all over the world. I mean, we, we map out his, his, his stuff all over the world, um, his, his interests. We stop him from doing a big deal to buy the state-owned um uh, aluminum aluminum industry in the now you know uh Eastern europe liberated uh Czechoslovakia what was then Czechoslovakia then later of course then split up again. we stop him from actually still doing a deal with the u s mint in, in the United States where he's, he the this, this fugitive for American justice is selling copper and, and nickel to the u s mint so You know, that seemed kind of, I don't know, un-American or something. I don't know. But we nailed him on that. And like Tom Brokaw said it on the nightly NBC News one night. It was great. Anyway, and workers are, you know, as as much involved in this as possible. So it's a steel workers union. And, you know, they spend as much money as they can to, like, send workers all over over the world. Bucharest Romania had a guy had a huge hotel there, you know. Um, Amsterdam, this place, that place. And, yeah, you know, it was it was. It was uh, it was sc- it was scary in that our research revealed that he was an incredibly ruthless guy who would not stop uh, from from killing people. In fact, his former PR person said, do not go to, to Jamaica, which is a place we thought about going and we would joke about because, you know, the weather's so great. But he said, you know, Mark can have you killed for one hundred dollars there in Kingston. Um, so, OK. Jesus. And this <laughs> other guy, you know. Then this other guy, um, Matty Huananti, who was like a, a a business rival of Rich, who had become like a source for us and was like a world-class skier. He was a fin. I mean, you know, so he was skiing like 11 months a year or whatever. So he, 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 he barely survived the hit-and-run attack on a ski slope, which, you know, this guy doesn't get hurt on ski slopes. Like, he was great. His neck was broken, though, um, and he, you know, and he – he was in critical condition. He survived it. You know, pretty much everybody on the campaign thinks that was an attempted murder. And it went on and on, but we win. Okay. I mean, I could, I could go on. It, there's, there are so many stories. A lot of them aren't in print, but the upshot is we win the campaign after 20 months. We get, we get the workers, all 1700 workers get back their jobs. Um, you know, it becomes kind of a, you know, to some extent, the national story, it's it's it, it's in Eric Loomis's book, which gave me the lead to sort of like talk about it myself. He's got a paragraph in his book. Uh, that's all great. Um, Rich himself, you know, concedes the feed, has like, you know, the president, the vice president, the steel workers come to his chalet or something, you know. Um, you know, his 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 lawyer was Leonard Garman, who was Nixon's general counsel. You know, and we get the last laugh on him, too. And that was great. And, you know, a book, a great book about it was written by by two academics um, called Ravenswood. And but for me and the lead into the piece is, you know, these tactics or these these whole this whole strategic paradigm, we could do incredible things with it. You threw like lots, incredible amount of resources, both human and financial resources into it. And, you know, spent two years uh, figuring all this stuff out. And personally, it was obviously gratifying and, and really was crazy and exciting. But as a as a model to rebuild labor, it just you couldn't do this stuff on scale. So it wasn't like, oh, this was the turning point for labor. It was like, yeah, union density kept going down. I mean, there were other great campaigns that, you know, lots of people have done. You know, obviously, SEIU Justice for Janitors and then another example of these kind of comprehensive campaigns. Um, but the numbers keep going down and somehow there's nothing yet that can replace just the sheer mass mobilization of workers withdrawing their labor when they, when they have a mind to, as opposed to this incredibly, you know, ingenious stuff that we were doing to sort of compensate for that.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes good sense. Um, you know, there's so many good things in in the the review that you wrote, Rich. Uh, it seems to me that that one of one of the themes is uh, the difficulties that arise in growing the labor movement or just in, in lefty politics generally have to do with uh, the extent to which there needs to be unity, uh, and that's very difficult to do. So you need, as as Eric Loomis argues, uh, the state to have people that are willing to work with labor and to help unions aren't strong enough without people in government to, to work with them and and, that are on their side. Um, and that conflicts with other problems because within the, the, the left and electorally within the democratic party, right, you have, uh, other conflicts that, you know, you touched on about race and intersectionality. Uh, so there has to be unity and yet there are all these conflicts that threaten that unity. So, so, uh, what, what are some thoughts you have about the future of, um, unions and the future of the left generally in trying to have a united front in power that's effective uh, amidst all this kind of uh, internecine struggle?
2: Well, you know, this is a, you know, obviously a classic and a very old question. In fact, you know, just in terms of, uh, you know, labor history and labor, labor studies, labor theory, uh, across disciplines this is still a controversial thing because you know a lot of people have argued in the past not not without reason that the more that uh the state any state gets involved in the labor movement the more bureaucratic it becomes um the less likely it is to respond to uh, the energy of the rank and file i mean this is a you know a classic criticism of the kind of new left scholars um, that that emerged after the 60s new left labor people you know mike davis kim moody people like that um, and there's something to it um, the trouble is especially although not only i would say in the united states among the advanced so-called advanced democratic or advanced capitalist countries is that like, if you just leave it to, like, an arm wrestle between labor and capital, like the way uh, the general counsel, the AFL-CIO, and then subsequently Secretary of Labor, and then subsequently Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg wished in the 1950s when labor was at its strongest, like, labor usually loses just because, like, in the actually existing history as it plays out, the corporations are stronger. And then they get a, a, a thumb get put on the scale on their behalf um, by, by the state too. So labor has to somehow, whether it's in some countries, whether it's through an explicit labor party or a social democratic party, whether it's through a rejuvenated democratic party in, in this country, uh, allowing for like the various kinds of dynamics of race, class and gender. Labor has to have the state at least say, you know, you are, and this is, you know, we're a long way from uh, socialism here, or so, some way, but you are at least as a as a foundational axiom, you are a quotidian, love that word, part of liberal democratic capitalism. Like, unions are as much part of what we do here in the United States, for example, as corporations are, or universities are or podcasts are and, <laughs> and, and we'll show that you know small small capital a uh, pretty bourgeois capital um and so you know we're going to validate that and so the, it, it appeared to some people at the time that around the time of the national labor relations act and then into world war ii which was its own set of unique circumstances that labor had established that okay Unions are just part of the mix. It's like Dwight Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, not, you know, a Republican, spoke before the AFL convention, before the AFL and CIO was merged in 1952 when he was running for president, subsequently won, and said, you know, any, you know I'm paraphrasing now because I can't remember the exact quote, but, the, but it was a very strong quote. It basically said any, anybody who thinks that unions just aren't part of the mix now and going forward is just some, you know, reactionary throwback i mean we're not not even talking about that anymore it should just yeah you 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 have your your weighted existence here in the in our political culture and in our political economy and so so loomis um in his in his fine book kind of you know pounds that point like you know to get back to like the argument of in the book itself where the way, way the argument is structured like the 10 strikes. So, you know, you have a chapter basically based around labor actions and then he builds out from there to like the, really it becomes the political economy of the entire country and the building of capitalist democracy in the United States. And at the end of it, almost every chapter um Loomis will will sort of get to a point where he'll say, "Yeah, and this this strike, this labor action but this set of labor actions, because he sort of, you know, he sort of digresses into many more strikes than just 10, which is to the book's advantage. Um, they either succeeded or failed because the state stepped in either to help labor as, you know, TR did in the, in the coal strike in the early 1900s, which was really the first president to really explicitly kind of say, OK, let's fix this, guys. And you're not going to crush the union. Big deal. You know, obviously, FDR did many times on Labor's side, et cetera. But obviously, also, then you have it the other way, like Reagan sort of stepping in, you know, sort of stepping in, not just stepping in, but explicitly crushing the air traffic controllers, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, almost every chapter, he says, look, if Labour doesn't have the state on its side, it loses, or at least the odds are really high. So I just get back to thinking you know maybe i lack the political imagination or the social imaginary as the theorists say but i just can't figure out how to how to get unions at least at an initial step here in the us and, and indeed in other advanced countries to a point where they they have more power and more weight unless the state like is on their side the trick though and i'm just going to add this and know i'm carrying on but the trick is that at the point when unions need that help from the state most, definitionally they are at their weakest. Otherwise, they wouldn't ask for the help. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, like now, like unions beg, you know, please help us, whoever, the, you know, is the Democratic president or Democratic Congress or whatever. Please, please help us. You know, some Democrats actually I would say argue more these days than ever than than in many, many years, which is a fascinating paradox. But the fact is that labor is asking for help from a position of weakness now with union density down, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's my answer there.
0: Wouldn't it make sense then, because I I know in your piece, you also uh, speak to the Green New Deal and how labor, at least uh, part of labor, isn't supporting it for for whatever reason. Uh, It occurs to me that uh, insofar as the the neoliberal wing that has arisen in the Democratic Party has eaten away and worked against the interests of unions and labor, uh, it seems strange to not try to... Um for unions not to try to ally themselves more with the kind of social dem dem dem-soci-wing uh, who might actually help them when they're at their weakest out of principle, right? As opposed to to those that, that are seeking more of a quid pro quo uh, in the neoliberal wing. So so it's it, can you help me understand why they're, they're doing that other than maybe the, the myopia, right, of just looking out for their union rather than unions interconnected?
2: Well, that, the, your last point is obviously part of it. Um, and – let's be clear. I, you know, I think there's going to be some of the more progressive unions, you know, and, and already do like, like SEIU. I'm sure has connections with say D, DSA uh, in, in, in places, but there's a lot of things going on here. And it's, it becomes an incredibly complicated dance. Like if you look at the green new deal, yeah. Poli- First of all, Yes, labor itself is so heterogeneous in terms of like sectors of the economy, public versus private, um, sort of old line building trade unions versus manufacturing unions versus service union, again, versus state unions, that it doesn't have, um, it would be nice to think it does, but in reality it doesn't have a universal principle of solidarity um, In fact that's part of the reason that that patco lost their strike in 1981 because uh, the uh, the airline pilots who had a lot of leverage they didn't want to go with patco and patco itself you know was so smug that they endorsed reagan in 1980 <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, you know, so, you know, who's the who's the villains here? The, the machinists who were headed then by a self-proclaimed, as the phrase goes, socialist, William Winters, the singer uh, and a member of DSA. Um, when when Putsch came to shove, he didn't want to join their strike either because he thought they were going to lose. Um, so. You've got a lot of different interests. And some of these unions are just think, wow, we're just going to lose jobs here. You know, we're just, right, as you say, we're just calculating that we're just going to lose jobs. On the other hand, when labor is weak, as it generally is now, it does try to like, uh, expand its, its sort of template uh, and make connections. This AFL-CIO, for example... And certainly SCIU, which is no, not in the AFL-CIO currently, ha, has you know does reach out to other progressive groups, um, does reach out to to you know to feminist groups, to uh, to to African American civil rights groups, to immigration activist reform groups. Um, now you ask, but right, what about the Self-proclaimed, like that as again, as the phrase used to be known, the self-proclaimed socialist, the DSA. What about what about Bernie Sanders? And this is where I would I would say to you that another part of the dynamic here, including what's going on with the Green New Deal, the initial sort of, you know, lukewarm or worse uh remarks of some labor leaders toward it, is that unions are a are small c conservative uh and you know somebody i worked in labor movement for like 24 years and sometimes you know leftists who are frankly you know usually themselves independent contractors right i mean you know they're either writers or academics um you know a, a history or sociology department in a university is just What is that but 25 independent contractors who share the same floor of offices. They're all doing their own separate research, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, unions are very much not independent contracting thinkers. Um, And they're very worried about, for good reason, about being beaten badly, busted, you know, days of jailing most union leaders hasn't had that in a while. But even large fines. So, like an example, you know, in back in the eighties, like the you know the the uh, co-writer of the the uh, port, famous Port Huron statement, founder of SDS, you know, Tom Hayden, who was still pretty much a lefty then, and he was for the rest of his life. You know, ran for mayor uh of Los Angeles and pretty much every union in. in including the the progressive unions, uh it endorsed the incumbent who was like a a sort of not insane, kind of like business friendly but not rabidly libertarian uh Republican named Tom Reardon. And you think that's crazy. How did they you know how could they not endorse the lefty, you know? And and you have a good argument. Their argument is because we think actually that guy, the lefty isn't going to win. And we want to have some weight with this guy who actually does do business with us and doesn't try to destroy us. Now I'm not asking you to accept that. I'm asking you just to sort of understand it as an analytical point that sure. Sure. There were same thing in in Chicago with Romp. Some unions obviously broke from him, you know, famously the teachers union, a few others, but others stayed with him, you know? Um, So Part of the problem with, and I think you know this is a, a a very soft prediction, or at least something to look for. I, it'll be interesting to see what unions across the board do vis-a-vis the Sanders candidacy going forward. Um, they, a lot of them, and probably even the most progressive ones, are going to be calculating things beside like who is the guy most you know, on their side. Like, when Sherrod Brown left the race, they, lo- they lost, like, a good sort of still, you know, liberal, you know, populist Democrat who doesn't call himself a socialist. A lot of these unions now are going to be afraid. You know, again, I'm not, you know, justifying this, but I'm saying they're going to be afraid if they're labeled socialist too. They're also just going to be calculating, okay, can he win, can he win? Now, obviously... We all fail in our punditry. They were calculating in 2016, too. And they picked the, they picked the person they were, they were sure, frankly, all of them, SEIU, all the rest of them, picked the person they were sure was not only going to win the nomination, but win the presidency, Hillary Clinton. Not because, you know, she had great union bona fides. I mean, she was saying all the right things yeah, has for years. But because they said, well, why do we want to piss off the winner? She, she is going to be president of the United States. We're on her side. Um, But they got that wrong, as did obviously many other pundits from left to right. Um, So the punditry might be wrong. The anxiety about being linked to a socialist might be craven or whatever you want to say. But these, these are real considerations. And I'm not saying I don't know what's going to happen, you know, but it's going to be interesting to see because of that small C dynamic. Uh and to some extent even a larger sea dynamic in the American in the American labor movement. Um, you know, since post war period. So
1: well, Yeah. This may be this uh one more question on, on union organizing. So uh yeah, I think you described well this this, this situation and how, you know, I, I would characterize it as as tactical caution that is sort of uh, uh, shaded into timidity. You know, it's like it's like you're just being nipped away, another percent here, another percent here, and you have gone from thirty five percent union density to seven percent, and you're still just going. It, well, what if we lose? And like it's like, come on, dude, get some chips and just push them onto something because there's going to be not a single person left in the whole private, yes, private sector, as you say. Uh, what about the, the you know there's there's those periods in history like it's like uh, 1930s under um, uh, what's his name Big Bill Haywood or whatever when there were just sudden ex- explosions of union organizing and like whole whole sectors of the economy being organized in a matter of uh, of of you know months or years and like what 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 type of situation is that what uh, what are those those people thinking at that time. Well that's,
2: you know, that's that's a great question obviously. Um and you know, it, another point to make about union growth is when you look at and this is not just the United States but again in the advanced countries, uh, there's a correlation here. When you look at the way unions grow in in Modern history and will date modern history since around, you know, 1880 or so, 1890. Um, They grow in big in the United States and pretty much elsewhere. They grow in big chunks or they don't grow at all. Yeah. Um, They either decline or stay flat. So what is going on with the big chunks? With the big chunks um, means they either grow during a a massive economic dislocation, like the great depression the 1930s or they grow under the controlled economy uh and the statist again state the, st- the importance of the state the statist imperative for full production of a war and a big war not just you know yeah obviously full
1: mobilization
2: yeah, right. I'm not talking about regional wars. I'm talking about World War II and also World War One, for that matter, there's, where labor came out of that incredibly strong. There's a
1: great. Uh, I was. I was just reading this Politico reprint of an article from 1944 when FDR sent the troops into Montgomery Ward to pull the CEO out because he he wouldn't accept the NLRB negotiated settlement with the union, and it was like they literally carried him out like he was a baby. It's like
2: they literally did and he he was a you know he was a particular i wouldn't say yeah he was extreme both in his affect and like just not wanting to make the deal at all i mean the deal you know going back to like you know that they, that fdr cut with, you know with labor uh and 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 corporate america writ large just you know shortly after pearl harbor was really oh uh, basically a good deal for both sides, but both sides broke through and pushed at it and chafed at it. I mean, basically the deal was to the companies, hey, you're going to get 24-7 production because we need every goddamn thing you make. You know, we need the bullets, the bombs, the uniforms. We need food. You know, we, we need shoes. You know, we need a centralized pretty much planned economy with everybody working, which is why on VE day or VJ day, correct me on, you know, the measured unemployment rate was (laughs) 1.2%. You know, I I would not, you know, I would say that, you know, like they were out there that 1%, but, you know, that's pretty damn close to full, to uh, full employment. Um, So it was a good deal for the companies because, 24-7, 24-7, in, you know, high, you know, ratcheting up productivity made them a hell of a lot of money. The deal for the unions was, okay, so you guys, you, your guys work, do that, work 24-7, but anywhere you want to have a union, your union's just going to be, you know, it's going to be certified. These companies are going to accept it because we can't, buy, we can't deal with any strikes. You're going to get regular raises. Um, they're not, you know, you're going to work. you guys are going to work hard, but they're going to get regular raises. You as as, as labor institutions are going to have constant growth, which is why you know the four plus million more union members uh, came on board in a you know country of 120 million during during uh, World War II. Um, uh, maybe a little more. My, my figures are merging in my head these days, <laughs> but. So that was a good deal from both sides, but both sides pushed it. And sometimes the company said, no, we hate unions. We don't want a union like, like Montgomery Ward. And then Roosevelt busted hard on them. And sometimes, like John L. Lewis would go out in the coal mines and say, no, actually, we're not making enough money. And that was when you know coal was represented 65% of America's energy needs. And he could pull out 400,000 people and you know turn off the lights. So both sides had their push. Um, what happened, you know, what happened in the '30s, you know, was was a, and again, you know, it's incredible to think because the '20s were terrible for unions, but you know, basically they were they were busted hard after World War One. They were red baited. Um, the you, membership declined to about you know ten percent of the of the non farm workforce uh, at the time of the Depression. Um, but what happened was. There were shoots and, and uh, seeds of militancy that had sustained itself in the post-World War I period. Failure of 350,000 steel workers to organize a National Steel Union in 1919. Well, they lost, but, that, but the sort of resonance, the historical memory of that militancy sustained itself. And... Once we got into the, the, the teeth of the depression, but what the, John L. Lewis and some of the other founders of the CIO figured out was, the AFL doesn't have this right. We can actually organize what's called wall-to-wall in manufacturing companies. We can organize we can organize across uh, steel, across auto, across uh, electric companies, across rubber) <laughs> We could do that, and and a very crucial thing was there was this cadre because we, are, of course, in the um, in some ways, some of the high the high point of both socialism and communism, different sectors of the of the world leftist movements in the United States, socialism actually was much weaker then than it was in the early 1900s, but communism reached its apex. In, in, in the 1930s, and that was a cadre of ideologically driven organizers and staff members who said, "Yes, we're going to organize unions because that's what leftists do to organize unions." Now, you know, sometimes the CP, the Moscow connection, wasn't so great, and you know there were contradictions. Let's say, uh, which I just touch on briefly in my my piece in the. Uh, in the nation in, in, during the world war two years. But that, I think that cadre, you talked you, t- you talked to Lexis before about, you know, obviously DSA. I think that cadre is very important. In other words, just to have some people who frankly are doing this because they don't necessarily benefit all that much from it themselves materially, or even their own benefit from it. If they're workers, um, isn't that great? Uh, or they don't think about it that much. Well, let, let me step back. Their own benefit materially assert, may well be important. Sure, sure, doing it also for ideological reasons, and that was the difference between now and then. Is workers are doing that today? This kind of new laborist segment. I mean, basically, guys your age and and women um, who are like you know have good have quote unquote good educations. You know, are not. Blue collar workers, as they used to be called, or manufacturing workers, but are workers coming out of the Great Recession of 10, 10 years ago and saying, you know, we're getting screwed to. They become radicalized. And what they're doing is they're not organizing auto plants because that's frankly anachronistic now. They're, you know, they're organizing uh, online, you know, uh, media companies. They're organizing as graduate students in their graduate departments uh, at elite, but not only elite universities. So that's the good news. The bad news is that there were a hell of a lot more workers in steel, auto, and rubber and transportation, you know, Teamsters, trucks in the 1930s than there are in um, uh, internet uh, media companies today. You know, like, you know, I mean, that's, in other words, this is this is really good. I mean, it's it's sort of like the it's it culturally reproduces the ideology of labor, it's sort of what we're doing right here right now. Um, we're culturally reproducing the ideology of labor. That's good. It's good for those individual shops, you know, whether it's Vox or the New Republic or, you know, there's, there's you know, the dozens of them now or whether it's the, you know, the graduate students at Brown or or or, or Columbia. That's all good. Um, but when you organize steel, rubber, trucks, uh, and railroads were already organized in, in, in mid-century America. You had leverage in the you know these quote unquote commanding heights of the economy, and that was the difference. They were able to, the leverage they had then was a huge deal.
0: So that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the economy is different. The leverage was different. Um, but for today, lessons to take away for today, it strikes me uh, a couple things. One, you know, the Great Depression, the war, that was a shared reality. And, and the crisis we have today The crisis we have today is just as shared and real with with climate change, with inequality. Uh, It's just as existential in so many ways, but it's an epistemological problem because, uh, especially on the right, there's not an acknowledgement of that reality. But with the the right leadership and power in government, right – Um, the new, the new green deal could do the same thing for unions. It seems to me in terms of getting into full employment, in terms of addressing clean energy, in terms of, um, making as urgent the response that the new deal was to those crises back then, um, as the response could be now to the crises we have now. And I think that this ties into, to what you're saying about the need for ideology and radicalizing, um, the left generally but but maybe unions in particular. Because the, the the tactical responses that Ryan was speaking to um, seem to me to be uh, based upon that kind of material interest focus of myself, my family, my union, uh, rather than seeing strategically. Because I think that the difference between tactics and strategy is strategy is tied to vision, which is probably tied to a broader theolo- theoretical understanding, right? And once you understand that your freedom and equality is bound up with, with everyone else's, right, um, then you you can make those strategic moves and then you can have the power of that interconnected um, strategic push, I think.
2: Well, um, let me say this. Let me just back up and um, just say a word for the difficulty of, I know you're not going to be too sympathetic, but for the difficulty of being a union officer or union president. Um, you know, remember I made the comparison and I was being pretty serious between, you know, independent contractors, which leftists almost always are not always as we see now with these organizing of their, of their shops, uh, by this new laborist, um, cadre. But, you know, when you, when you're at the top, you know, I've been in a room with these guys and, you know. I don't want to say the job sucks because, you know, they don't they don't get paid anything close to the corporate guys. But, they, you know, they make a good living and, you know, they're not if, even the ones who used to work as shitty jobs like, you know, mining coal or, you know, in a, in a steel mill or something. Well, they're not doing it anymore. And, you know, it's a it's an office job, you know, but just sort of figuring out wh- where to right, where to put those chips, as as Ryan said, you know, and right. Yes. The fear. If I put them in the wrong place, you know, we could be really screwed. Yes, you're screwed now. So just go for it. You'd think it would be the obvious thing, but they're trying to balance, you know, not just, they're trying to balance like being an, you know, an employer to lots of staff and obviously an institution with, you know, hundreds of thousands and in some cases, millions of members, still millions of members. And. You know, it's, there's no obvious route, you know, there were back in the old days, you know, there were sort of some obvious moves when they had more power. Now it seems like, right, there's a good, there were good guesses. There were good estimates. There were just hell go for it, put in new chips, but it's, it's tough um, to sort of, you know, sort of say, okay, I am going to go for it. And, you know, the risk may be severe for my membership, but I'm going to go for it. I'm saying, Sure. They have to do it or the, the way it must happen inevitably is the rank and file may have to push them to do it. So there's going to have to be workers who sort of get on the street and say, we want you as institutions to do more. Now, to get back quickly to the Green New Deal, the difference and, you know, it's both a profound one, an obvious one and a frustrating one because it, it leads to a collective action problem. The difference between the Green New Deal and, say, the Depression Or even you know, fighting fighting the war against against fascism. Is that the danger is being presaged? It's being anticipated by you know melting, you know, you know melting parts of the polar ice cap, or or you know constant hurricanes and all that. But it's not as concrete and immediate as. You know,
1: not yet. Twenty five or 30
2: percent. Not yet. Right. Not yet. But that not yet. There's a lot of weight in that. See, it's not enough to just argue cognitively. It's going to get worse for most people. They can't really. I'm not talking about politically activist people. I'm talking about most people um, who just sort of go through their days. They can't quite grasp making the sacrifices which they may have to make in terms of just spending more money on, on, uh, on different kinds of, uh, energy and using less of it now that they need to make. you know, if, if, you know, Dave Roberts at Vox he's you know, obviously one of the most knowledgeable, uh, uh, journalists in this area is, is right. And if the green new deal, uh, analysts are right. We have to totally decarbonize in 30 years and, and, and do like a massive interconnected uh, international uh, job of, of decarbonizing. That's just us decarbonizing, I guess, in, in, in 30 years. Now, I'm for that. I want that to happen. But I'm saying that's a harder sell than telling people they were getting hosed in 1933 when they were like you know sleeping on the street and uh, you know and, and their clothes was in a box. That's that now and, and of course the, the the grim irony and the paradox may be that by the time it's like you know oh my god gee this, that's Miami it's huh or that was Miami it's under <laughs> six feet of water it might be you know then it might be too late but but that's a hard
1: sell. Well, that's it for. The first part of our interview with uh, Rich Esselson. stay tuned for part two, which will be uh, coming up very shortly, uh, where we'll talk about varieties of um, left-wing ideology. Uh, Take care.
0: Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with $5 a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, We really appreciate the support. And it helps us keep this going.